among what I assume is a fairly long list of things we don't wish to be called in our culture, among the many lists of names, titles, descriptors applied to our own lives, I think this is an important one, the term, the descriptor, the title of, of hypocrite. In our culture, the term of hypocrite gets tossed around somewhat loosely, is applied somewhat accurately, but we find that broadly speaking in our culture, the accusation of hypocrisy is everywhere. It's pervasive, shows up in all arenas of public life. And so when we think about hypocrisy, we can apply it to any number of topics in our day-to-day conversation with our neighbors, friends, family members. We see the accusation or the presence of hypocrisy in things like politics, We see it in religion, see it in various relational aspects of even sports world and bad business dealings. We see hypocrisy in academic settings. We see hypocrisy or the accusation of it everywhere. And the fact that it is such a pervasive topic and a pervasive descriptor reminds us that it's probably a conversation topic that many would have an opinion on. If you were to have a conversation with a neighbor, your barista, the person in the cubicle or the Zoom square next to you, if you were to ask what they think about hypocrites, they would probably readily apply that term, that descriptor and everything that comes along with to a particular arena in life. And we find that particularly striking that so many would have an opinion on hypocrisy because Jesus did too. And we see Jesus's words and his inflection on the idea, the concept, the accusation of hypocrisy quite clearly in our passage today. As we continue in our series in the book of Matthew, we'll be in the book of Matthew chapter 23. If you have a copy of scripture, you can go ahead and turn with me there, or you can use a Bible app. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's also one available to you underneath the seat in front of you. We'll be in Matthew chapter 23. We have our work cut out for us this morning. We're doing the whole chapter. What a delight. We'll be in Matthew 23. As you turn to the book of Matthew, if you're new to reading the Bible, the larger numbers you find there are chapter numbers. The smaller numbers are verses. We'll read the whole chapter together. Or I'll read it and you can follow along. So follow along silently as I read Matthew 23 aloud. <clears throat> Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant." Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves." 
Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them, the shedding of blood of the prophets." Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and the stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm going to take a sip of water. <laughs> we'll see in our passage today, this chapter, Matthew 23, this emphasis that we are to humble ourselves before the Lord as we seek to live consistent with our confession. That we're to humble ourselves before the Lord as we seek to live consistent with our confession. And we're going to work through the chapter here, chapter 23, in three parts. First, we'll see a summary of sinful tendencies. We'll see a summary of sinful tendencies in verses 1 through 12. Second, We'll see that Jesus provides specific examples of those sinful tendencies. He provides specific examples of those sinful tendencies. We'll see that in verses 13 through 34. And lastly, 
we'll see the depth of Jesus's care and we'll see the cost of rejection. The depth of Jesus's care and the cost of rejection. So first, what is the summary of sinful tendencies that we see in this chapter where Jesus is addressing this group of people. And as we think of these sinful tendencies, we ought to remember that the Pharisees, along with the Sadducees, and this broader category of people in the passage referred to here as the scribes, are among the groups of people that Jesus most often addresses. We see instance after instance of Jesus addressing these types of people. They're all considered religious leaders among the Jewish people, and they have distinct features and habits that Jesus frequently cites in his teaching. And in addition, Jesus' teaching concerning these groups is almost exclusively, every time we see it, in the form of a rebuke or a correction, something that they've done wrong or partially wrong that needs to be tweaked. Michael Reeves at Union Theological School in the UK has published a helpful little book called Evangelical Pharisees that pairs sort of this pharisaical way of living with modern iterations of it. And you can, I can talk to you more about that book, but if you're interested, pursue that route. Our commentary today and our preaching today will be a bit more specified. The group that Jesus is talking to specifically in chapter 23. Suffice to say, if you've been reading your Bible for a while, When you see the name Pharisees, scribes pop up in the narrative, you begin to sort of expect that Jesus' tone and his posture are going to change. His tone and his posture begin to change as he addresses these types of people. And thankfully, we're not left to wonder why that is. We see here in Matthew 23, we're sort of clued in to a few of the most significant reasons that these groups of people draw the ire of Jesus. We find in verses 1 through 12 a summary of the Pharisees, the scribes, sinful tendencies to draw Jesus' attention. Jesus points out in verse 2 that these individuals sit in the seat of Moses. This is a reference to their position within Jewish society as those who handle God's word. They study it closely. They figure out its nuances and its particulars, and they seek to help people apply it to their lives. Those who wish to obey God come to these people for wisdom, for advice, guidance on how to apply God's word to their lives. And yet, what we find is there's a notable disconnect between what the scribes and the Pharisees teach and what they profess to believe and what they actually do, or in this case, don't do. Jesus tells his followers and the crowds that while they are right to listen to the Pharisees and scribes on account of their knowledge of the content that they're teaching, they should not seek to emulate what they do. These groups essentially don't practice what they preach, full of hot wind, talking about the Bible in such a way, compelling people to obey it in such a way, and yet not being willing to obey it themselves. In fact, quite the opposite, where life within the kingdom of God is grounded in freedom and grace, the Pharisees tend to teach a strict adherence to God's law. And in doing so, they end up burdening their hearers, the passage says, weighing them down with unnecessary procedures and systems of law-keeping that they themselves are unwilling to maintain. In addition, we find here in Jesus' teaching that the Pharisees enjoy the limelight. Verse 5, they do their deeds to be seen by others. They enjoy the limelight, being out in front. They're attention-seeking, and they enjoy the praise of men, which we've already spoken of this morning, to the point that they make their clothing more ostentatious. 
They take the most prominent seats at public gatherings. They insist on being referred to by the most reputed titles of their day. You're like, I know these people. No, just kidding. All this, Jesus says, is antithetical to the faith that they profess to have, to the word of God that they profess to teach, that this is disconnected. Life within the kingdom of God is altogether different. We find again here Jesus' reference to the upside-down nature of life within the kingdom of God. For those who truly believe, life is not about jockeying for a position, trying to be in the best seat or the best place or to gain attention everywhere one goes. For those who truly believe, titles ought not matter much at all. Look at me, or look with me, verses 8 through 10. Speaking of titles, those who are wishing to be called rabbi, this prominent title in their day of teacher, Jesus tells his followers, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. You're all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. And neither even be called instructors, for you have one instructor, and that's the Christ. And so Jesus here lays out exemplary titles. He talks in three categories here. This title rabbi that the Pharisees so wish to have applied to themselves, this indication that they handle and know the word well, that they're the ones with authority to apply it and help others apply it to their lives. This title of rabbi that they so covet, Jesus instructs his followers and the crowds gathered here, you are not to take that title. Instead, you have one teacher referring to himself, and he points to equality underneath the authority and the teaching of Jesus. You're all brothers, he says. That title is reserved for one. When he speaks of not being called father here on earth, he doesn't have in mind in a familiar setting, so he's not talking about father of a family, but father as a title of recognition and culture, this high-standing position. You ought not desire the high-standing title, but rather... Think more of your father who is in heaven. And as far as instructor goes, the attention, the desire you have to be acknowledged for your ability to instruct in this way, all parlays over, falls over on to Christ. You have one teacher. And underneath the authority of God is this equality that Jesus points to. Underneath the authority of God and according to the real aim of Jesus' teaching, the kind of pride-filled hierarchy that the Pharisees are seeking to instill and maintain is non-existent. Within the family of God, certainly we have structures and we have structures of authority within the church and those are all played out in the New Testament, but all told, ultimately, all, even within the structures of the church, all are underneath the authority of Christ. This is how we operate. So life within the kingdom then is upside down, such that what you would expect to find in culture at large In other outposts and institutions, what you would expect to find in terms of reverence and recognition is reversed. The greatest among you, Jesus says at the end of that section, is actually the one who has come to serve. It is the one who humbles himself who will ultimately be exalted. And in fact, if you try, if you attempt to exalt yourself in that moment, you'll be humbled. Everything is reversed. And this is a blessed reminder for us, even this morning on a rainy Sunday, a blessed reminder that strength and sustenance is given to us not for status, but for service. That if we find ourselves strengthened in one day, sustained for another day to live life in the sight of God, that that strength and that sustenance is given for service and not jockeying for status. 
We see here that Jesus summarized the sinful tendencies of the Pharisees and scribes under these broader headings or categories we might refer to as hypocrisy and pride. He points to these actions in their lives, this inconsistency between their actions and what they profess to believe, manifestations of hypocrisy and pride. They do not live in accordance with what they profess to believe, and they seek to exalt themselves as exemplary in law-keeping and in properly understanding God's word and his ways, positioning themselves to receive all the social recognition that comes with. And while the focus of the text here surely is on the Pharisees and the scribes, it'd be a dangerous thing for us this morning to assume that Jesus' teaching here is merely descriptive, such that it's only pointing to the sins of others. Someone else's sin out there, over there, among them. These familiar sins of hypocrisy and pride are so evident in other people's lives, aren't they? When I go looking, I am sure to find hypocrisy somewhere. Want me to find pride in someone, it takes two seconds. Ask me about myself, you will be left wanting. Easy to spot in the lives of others, we begin to imagine that the world would be a much better place, a much better place, if others began to think like we did, act like we did, agree with what we said. And yet, the question is, is it possible for us to be too optimistic, perhaps too unwitting at times concerning our own inconsistencies between what we profess to believe and how we live? Is it possible that we look over the fact that there are glaring inconsistencies in our own lives? Are we unwilling to admit our own proclivities toward pride and boasting? You see, the grief, the sadness, the disdain we feel rise to the surface when we spy out hypocrisy or pride in someone else ought also to be for us an invitation. When we feel that creep up in us and spy out hypocrisy in another, it ought to be for us an invitation to ask of ourselves, where in my own life does the same tendency toward the same type of sin lurk? Is that present in my life? If we decry hypocrisy in our culture, if we spy it out among our neighbors, our friends, our family members, ought we not engage in the messy work of addressing it in our midst, both as a body and as individuals, as those who trust Christ, we have ample resources to do so. All that we need to peel back from the craziness, the busyness of life and ask ourselves, where am I really? Does my life match up to this confession I make, these beliefs that I claim to hold? Is there consistency there? We'll name a few of the resources we have at our disposal as we consider in a few moments what it looks like to respond to Jesus' teaching. But first, let's consider beneath these summary categories, hypocrisy and pride, the specific examples Jesus now launches into in this chapter 23. These specific examples of how these sins of pride and hypocrisy are demonstrated now in the lives of the scribes and the Pharisees. Verses 13 through 15, and a reminder here, there is a ton of cultural background here tied to each one of these woes that Jesus pronounces, and I am more than willing to have a conversation at the back, but for the sake of time, I won't subject you to every nook and cranny of what Jesus is after here, and so we'll try to sum it up as best we can. As we look at 13 through 15, Jesus is pointing to the fact that under the guise 
of welcoming others into the kingdom of God. So this is the MO of the Pharisees, that they are welcoming others into obeying God. So under the guise of welcoming others into following God, the scribes and the Pharisees are actually working against that very goal, effectively barring people from entry into the kingdom. And this is on account of their burdensome requirements, all that they add to the gospel, all the law keeping and the minutia of the law and the rule keeping that they're adding to the message of freedom and grace that defines the gospel. This is what's prohibiting people from entering the kingdom. Alongside, if the people were to look at the lives of the Pharisees and scribes and say, yeah, I think I want what they're saying. Let me now emulate what they're doing. They would be left wanting. The Pharisees and the scribes live inconsistently with what they profess to believe. And so even if someone wanted to follow them, they're left wanting with nowhere to go. Jesus says in the passage here that this is a grave situation. He says in 15, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And what Jesus is after here is, is affirming. You have all the right impulses of someone who wishes to evangelize and share the good news and share the message. You're crossing sea and land to go and do so. And yet when you think you make a convert, you're converting them to all the wrong things. They're seeking to follow your way of life and they're led astray and you bring them down with you. Quite the condemnation from Jesus to this group, the Pharisees and the scribes. In addition, in the next part of the passage, we see in 16 through 24 that Jesus points out the scribes and the Pharisees, they have a preoccupation with the finer points of the law, the nuances of the law and how these concerns distract them from more meaningful Overarching realities that are intrinsic to the gospel message. In verses 16 through 22, Jesus points out that they are concerned with the right way to articulate or phrase an oath. Is it by the altar or the gift on the altar? Is it by the temple or the gold that's in the temple? And what the Pharisees and scribes have spent their days doing is reorienting the, the phrasing and the wording of particular oaths such that if there ever came a day, believe it or not, that the Pharisees and scribes failed to keep their word, that they wouldn't be held accountable. And in all of this back and forth and nuancing and trying to pull out particularities of the law, they become so distracted in protecting themselves that they've missed the broader picture that they've missed the more obvious opportunities they have in front of them to serve, to demonstrate love and justice and mercy, forgiveness, faithfulness toward those around them. Jesus says they're preoccupied with meaningless things that are tucked down so far into the law that it's blinding them from being able to pay attention to the ample opportunities for love and good service in front of them. Jesus here reminds them that the foundations upon which their promises are made are most important. The foundations of a promise are most important. For those who truly believe will, will commit to telling the truth regardless of circumstances and phrases and wording. Those who truly believe will commit to truth-telling regardless of circumstances as truth-telling is consistent with our profession of faith in a trustworthy God. We tell the truth because our God is trustworthy. He is truth. 
We see in the next few verses in 23, 24, sort of an addendum to this. As Jesus points out, those aren't the only particularities or nuances of the law that you're distracted by. They're also distracted by the finer points of the law concerning tithing. 23 and 24, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel. Beyond pure financial resources and obeying the rule to to tithe or give a tenth of their financial resources, the scribes and Pharisees make it well known that not only are they giving a tenth of those things and pure financial resources, but they're giving a tenth of even their herbs. That's how far we're taking this. They're giving a tenth of even their herbs as well. And all this while, Jesus says, they're neglecting the purer, the plainer, the more simple, the more accessible opportunities for obedience that are in front of them. Jesus says this is tantamount to straining out a gnat or paying too close attention to small, relatively insignificant matters. I'm going to strain the gnat out of whatever I'm taking in. These pet issues. He says while they're preoccupied with these pet issues, they're swallowing a camel or ignoring more obvious in your face matters, such as these opportunities to minister to others. We might ask how frequently do we hold or do we similarly hold a particular opinion or a preference up, defending it at the cost of demonstrating grace and mercy to those around us. How often do we drag our own contentious contentious opinion into a conversation or an opportunity and hold it as the barrier that keeps us from loving someone well? What stands in the way today of you observing, following the more simple commands of Jesus? To love your neighbor, to love your friend, your family member. There is a disconnect, Jesus says, between between what the Pharisees and scribes appear to be outwardly and who they are inwardly, between how they act and what they profess to believe. On the one hand, the Pharisees and scribes profess to be upstanding religious leaders, concerned with knowing the heart of God through his word. And yet, the abuses of their authority and their hypocrisy is evident to anyone who sees. Jesus says that they've become experts at maintaining a front within the community. They become experts at maintaining a front within the community. 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. They've cleaned the outside of the cup, presented themselves well, held it all together for a moment, knew exactly what to say, put on the right airs, enough to get the repute and the reputation that they wanted from their peers. And in a moment, as Jesus begins to speak, all of it comes crashing down. Inwardly, their lives are marked by this greed, this self-righteousness. He goes on to say in the next part of the passage in 27 that they are like whitewashed tombs. This reference we have of the regular practice of bleaching tombs in the first century to improve their outward appearance when everyone passing by well knows that within the tomb are still bones, decay, uncleanness, the word says. 
rot. And so too, for those who seek to maintain purely a sterling outward appearance while foregoing attention to what is happening inwardly. The instruction here from Jesus is to not be so preoccupied, to not only give attention to our outward selves, but to peel back and pay attention to what's going on inwardly. To give ample attention to what is going on inwardly. Perhaps today for you, the reminder that appearance and reputation are not worth allowing the condition of your soul to lapse is what's needed. Perhaps that's what you're in the room for this morning, is that reminder that maintaining a right appearance, an upstanding appearance before others in all realms of life is not wor- worth letting your soul go to waste. That given the option of being well thought of by outsiders, while we languish inwardly, or giving attention to our spiritual health while being set back a few notches socially, we'll take the latter. And we'll take the time needed to diagnose and look at ourselves inwardly, diagnose ourselves spiritually, the help of God's spirit and his word. We'll choose the latter and God helping us, we'll embrace the love and the grace of God demonstrated in our lives through Christ. And in so doing, we'll feel the freedom to confess where we're tempted toward pride or to live in contrast with what it is we profess to believe. You see, the act of confession, the act of repentance and turning from our sin cures a thousand ills. As we think of our own spiritual condition and as we consider our witness to a watching world, these things become increasingly important. Perhaps you're here today, and this has long been the major critique or criticism you've had of environments, settings, groups of people like this one. of organized religion in particular, that its adherents are too hypocritical and too prideful. And anyone who is honest, standing in a position like mine, would grant that in various ways. That there have been manifestations and examples of faith leaders, of faith communities who have lived in rampant hypocrisy, who've let pride overtake what it is they're truly to be about, So we want to grant that, we want to invite the inquiry, want to receive the criticism, and then, having received the criticism, we want to respond to the criticism in light of what we know is true, in light of what we know is true. The church's history is marred by sinfulness, failure, and this is all consistent with institutions comprised of human beings. And so as we acknowledge that reality in a setting like this, we want to also acknowledge what is true about our confession. That if the charge is hypocrisy that we claim perfection and don't reach that standard, then we want to take a moment and peel back and improve perception and understanding of what our confession actually is. That no one who claims this faith, claims to follow Jesus, ought to be claiming a perfection of their own ought to be standing in the way of self-righteousness, that we're able to pull this off on our own. The confession is not our righteousness, not our perfection, but Christ's. That we lean wholly in light in spite of our failure, in light of our failure, on the finished work of Jesus, for his grace, for his forgiveness. And this is the life that we're now walking in as a community of faith together. 
Jesus' perfection, his righteousness, his perfect life in place of ours. The confession from here and elsewhere is not, we're perfect, watch us go. It's, he is perfect, watch us lean in as fully as we can. Acknowledging our failures, our sin along the way, but leaning fully, wholly into grace offered to us through Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. You see, the grace of Jesus, the gospel message, frees us up to be honest about our failures, about our sin, our shortcoming, and it frees us up to lean into the great hope that we have that through Christ we're made right, that through Christ we're made right. So none of this is hinging on my ability or your ability to hold it all together. But the gospel is a grace-laden dagger thrown into our hearts at every turn. And our lives are so reoriented by it that we can now confess actually who we are, but we more loudly confess who Christ is and what he has done for us. There is none righteous among us save one. So we are compelled then to confess our sin and our shortcomings and to lean wholly on Christ who lived a perfect life for us, died on our behalf, that we might be reconciled to God. And where one might brag that he is without sin, that boast should only ever be coupled with the confession that Christ has done the cleansing and that the Spirit of God is ever at work applying grace upon grace in our lives where we fall short. If we find that there is temptation to live without acknowledging Christ as our only hope, there are ramifications for that. There is a cost, and this is the last section of our text, there is a cost to not heeding Jesus' warning. In the third section of our passage, we see that the Pharisees and scribes have pressed, pressed, on in, pressed on in their hypocrisy and pride, and that they'll reap the whirlwind because of it. Look with me at verses 29 through 32. What are you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? For you build the tombs of the prophets, and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. 33 says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? We find here that the Pharisees and scribes are operating and have blinded themselves to the degree such that they're now walking in this belief that the sins of their fathers that have gone before them, the people who walk in the very same way they did throughout history, that they're now living somewhat apart from their sins and the guilt that comes because of it or acting in the same way. That they're separated in mind and thought and deed from the ways of their fathers and Jesus turns it back on them and says, you're falling right in line. You're overlooking the simple things of the faith. You're boasting about yourself, putting yourself in this prominent place to be made much of. You're not different in any way that you think you are. And as Jesus points out the inconsistencies in their living, he ties this to their fathers who have gone before them. Messenger after messenger after messenger has come proclaiming the truth, the righteousness, the justice of God, and they've been sent away. They've been stoned. They've been killed. And Jesus says, you'll fall in line as well. On account of your hypocrisy, wanting to be made much of, on, on account of your pride, you'll fly, fall in line as well. And messenger after messenger will continue to come and tell you the good news, the grace of God through Jesus, and you'll reject them as well. And what we find here in this penultimate events in the next few chapters as we continue throughout Matthew is that Jesus is alluding here, painting a picture of ultimate rejection that is to come. 
that not only will messenger and messenger and messenger come, but Jesus himself will come and he has come bearing this message and they will reject him also. And Jesus here alludes in 35 to the fact that there is no way, no way in their hypocrisy and their pride that they will escape ultimate judgment. They won't escape ultimate judgment. Jesus says, I will send prophet after prophet. I will send scribe after scribe. I will send myself. You'll continue to persecute. You'll continue to flog. You'll continue to put away and put off the very thing that is saving you. He says, truly in 36, I say to you that all these things will come upon this generation. This is going to happen in your midst. And the aim of all this and what all this is rooted in and what all this issues from is found in the last few verses of our passage in 37 through 39 as we see the lament of Jesus over the state of these very people who he is denouncing. And so what we ought to take notice of as we read 37 through 39 is that Jesus' condemnation of hypocrisy in these people's lives and pride in these people's lives is not separated or detached in any way from his care or love for them. It actually is the most loving thing that he can do. And this is how the word phrases that, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stone those who are sent to it. How often, listen to him, how often would I have gathered you, your children, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Time after time after time, you had opportunity to receive the grace, the goodness of this message and you were not willing. On account of this in 38, he says, see now your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, you will not see me again until I come in the day of judgment. And that's where business will be handled in this regard. There's a cost associated with the rejection of Jesus. A cost, a heavy cost. And yet what we see bound up in Jesus's message of condemnation is his love. And his mercy, his offer of grace, oh, how I would have gathered you under my wings, cared for you, nurtured you, restored you, set you upright and on your way, and yet you refused. Throughout the passage, we see that the Pharisees make the perpetual mistake, as Michael Reeves puts it, of seeing God's word as an end unto itself as an end unto itself. If we can grasp the letter of the law here and get every nuance and every, every specific just right, understand the ins and outs of God's decrees to the nth degree, then and only then can we and others live rightly. A good impulse that's tweaked several degrees too far. Mental assent to God's word that is detached from transformation in your my life of our whole person, our minds, our hearts, our desires, our passion, just pure mental assent will not be enough. Seeing rightly then, we find that God's word is actually a means of getting to know God himself. And this is what the Pharisees, the scribes, and all of their study and all their pouring over the words of scripture are missing, is this connection with God himself. So rather than allowing sort of legalism or strict abidance to the law, adherence to the law to cloud our view, or allowing a pure view of grace to keep us untethered from the commands of scripture totally, we find that the scriptures actually search our hearts. 
They shed light on our sin. They reveal to us the way of repentance and the way to everlasting life through faith and belief in Jesus. In a very real way, as we learn from the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus' discussion with them, in a very real way, this is all about pursuing depth where many are content to skate along the surface. In settings such as this, we can acknowledge the social aspects of this, that we'll get to see one another, we'll get to catch up on life and all manner of things, and we'll even do that in just a few moments. In just a few moments, you'll be holding coffee, I'll be holding a pastry, we'll be talking about the rain. There's a social aspect to it, right? And we can acknowledge that in a place like this. On the surface, there is. And yet, one layer deeper, just one layer deeper, there's a rich spiritual reality under reality undergirding our fellowship here, our communing with one another, a work that the Spirit is doing in knitting our hearts and lives together, bound together by the common thread of the gospel. And so too it is with God's word. There on the surface, everything we've come to know about reading the Bible, the Pharisees, the, the scribes and studying the Bible, for you and I, it's elbows propped up, chin on our hands, pouring over something we don't quite understand, but we wish we could, and so we seek, and we just pour in and press in. Everything we have come to know about reading the Bible is true. There is a surface-level approach, and yet, one layer deeper, there's an abiding spiritual reality when you pick up this book, an abiding spiritual reality that the Spirit is at work. When we take these words in, and our lives are being transformed through the reading of it, It's what most encourages consistency between our profession and our daily lives. When I tell you from the outset that consistency between what we profess to believe and what we actually do is the goal, the word of God is what most encourages that. And alongside, we're enveloped into a community of faith and empowered by the Holy Spirit and all of these things coalesce such that our lives begin to match what we say we believe. So as we seek to understand and then apply the scriptures, we find that on the one hand, we can view the scriptures as a window. We can view the scriptures as a window. We can see God through the scriptures. We learn more about him, about his character, his nature. We learn how he acts and responds. We learn how he loves. We see through the window of scripture. We see God. And we can see through the window of scriptures, we can see the life and the context surrounding Jesus' words, even to the Pharisees and scribes today. We can see their world a bit through the scriptures. We treat it as a window and we see their sins being addressed. And we look through the window of scripture and we see all of this occurring and all of this going on. And we too can use the scriptures as a window into our world. And in fact, it's the lens we ought to put on when we're considering things in our world. What does this mean? Well, what does the word say? Scripture is a window into our world as well. As we seek to make specific application of God's word to modern contexts and situations, we can look at the scriptures like we do a window into their world, into ours. And yet, on the other hand, and this is where we'll close today, we can approach scripture, use it, see through it as a window, but we can also look at the scriptures as we would a mirror. We can also look at it like a mirror. We can pick up God's word And we can see ourselves in it at various junctures. Somewhat famously been said that this book is unique, sort of peculiar, that in that as we read it, it's actually reading us, telling us who we are and what we're about and what our lives are to be about. And so as we seek to apply and think about a means of response here to Matthew 23 in our lives, we want to endeavor to do that not only by pointing out 
man, those are messed up people. We want to do so not only by using the teaching as a window, observing hypocrisy and pride over there among those people and far away from us, but we might ask the question, what resembles the content of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 23 nearer to home, among us and in my own life? And why would we do that? Why would we ask such a question? The text gives us one prompt. Remember who it is to Je- that Jesus is speaking to here in 23. It says that Jesus issues all of this teaching concerning the hypocrisy and the pride. All of this teaching is issued now to the crowds gathered and among them, Jesus' disciples. And so while Jesus is pointing out the sins of those people over there and the sins that are far away, his disciples, those closest to him, those who follow him, are listening in. And the text becomes for us not merely descriptive, but instructive, a kind of warning, a sort of appeal. That we, it becomes a sort of appeal that we avoid the same kinds of duplicitous living that Jesus points out. It's prudent of us to consider how hypocrisy and pride manifest so that we maintain a right understanding of the gospel. And with the Spirit's help, we preserve our witness in this world among those who do not yet follow Christ. And so as we seek to consider what a means of response here, I wanted to put it in three categories for us to consider as we take just a moment at the end of service today. In three categories that we might see Jesus' teaching, how Jesus' teaching lands in our lives today. And here are the three categories. For some in the room today, and this is a reality of it, for some in the room today, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 23 lands as an indictment. It's an indictment of our situation and how we've been living. Some of us are guilty of this. That how I'm living does not accord with what I profess to believe. It's an indictment. And that's how we grapple. And this is true about me in this area of life. Now, how do I approach that? How do I lean in? For others of us, Jesus' teaching maybe is just an indicator. Maybe like that light in your car that you become remarkably proficient at ignoring. That little check engine light that's flashing on your dashboard or just kind of sits there is telling you is reminding you that something is amiss. And perhaps Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 23, is that for you today? Something is a little off. As I consider the, prof- the profession of faith I'm making and the faith I proclaim to have and profess to believe, something is a little off in the way I'm living. And so how do I approach this? How do I tackle that? How do I lean in? For all of us, Jesus' teaching is an invitation. As we consider the sin in the lives of others, the hypocrisy that's so rampant, the pride that's so evident, Jesus' teaching here all through 23 is an invitation. It's an invitation to confession and to living freely from underneath the twin burdens of legalistic law-keeping and free, unabashed sin. Jesus' teaching here is a confession to come. If I'm the one who feels indicted by Jesus' teaching on hypocrisy today, there is an invitation for me to come, to come to Christ, for he has sufficiently dealt with that sin and is now compelling me, moving me to confess, to bring me toward others, to take a trusted brother or sister and say, hey, I need to let you know this is going on in my life. Will you help me? Will you help me stay accountable? Can you help bring me along in this season of my life that is far more difficult than others? For the one who has that indicator that there may be something amiss in my life, there is an invitation 
for you to invite someone else into your life, to lean into the community of faith, to pick up God's word and begin searching your own heart. What is amiss? What is off? What is inconsistent? My confession of faith. And for those who do not yet follow Christ, the passage through and through, every page of scripture we find, is an invitation for you to get to know God. For you to get to know God, to experience the love, the mercy available to us through Christ. If you've been considering that conversation, if we've pressed in on that kind of roadblock for you, the church is hypocritical, that there are too many things gone wrong, we would love to continue to have a conversation. We welcome the questions that you have. You hear that over and over if you've been attending long. We desire that conversation. We desire the question asking, question seeking, and to have a dialogue. And far above all else, we desire to put the aim of our confession before you, Jesus Christ, the grace, hope, mercy available through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Let's pray together.